Welcome to the Holsey B. Mark radio station. Listen, share, follow. Be part of the journey. Listen to things from cryptozoology, UFO, comedy, music, interviews, Freddy the Free Car Show, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to the Holsey Mark podcast show. And tonight I'm talking to James Eden. Jane was born in England and grew up exploring the history and culture of London and surrounding countries. In the 1990s, she emigrated from Detroit, USA, eventually settled in southwest Florida. She returned to England after a 15 year absence. She spent six years in the southwest of England living from Exmouth. Here, inspired by the atmosphere, beautiful scenery, and rich in history of the place, she wrote her first novel, Raven's Deep. The next two books, Blood and Ashes, a memoir called completed a gothic vampire trilogy. Jane is a c- trained horticulturist and spent time working and volunteering, volunteering in British National Trust for Exmoor, a thousand year old Dunster Castle, gaining more insight into the mysteries surrounding these ancient places. Having always been intrigued by the supernatural, the inspiration came for the Beekeeper's Daughter, a historical dark romance. While we England and Scotland provided the backdrop for precious novels of vampires, witches, and haunted mansions. New Orleans presents a setting for a new, her first novel, Wilkes Falls, a multi-layer thriller that combines the age-old struggle between good and evil, a tale steeped in voodoo and the culture of the deep south and the haunted, desolate Dartmoor. Since returning to Florida in 2014, James began writing the Florida Gardening Magazine. She now lives in Sacosta with her family. But that may be wrong, because I think she's ready. Hi, Jane. How's your day? Hi, Mark. I'm fine, thanks. And thanks for having me on the show. That's okay. Right, what inspired you to write? In the first place, um, in 2004, I stayed on Exmoor in a haunted house <laughs> and it was just the, the location the location was so remote um, and that sort of a few odd happenings in the house just set in mind the story and I as I thought more about it it was going to be a ghost story um, but just I know chain of events happened which led me to find this remote church in the middle of the woods and just one thing after the other led me to incorporate a vampire into my ghost story so my first novel was born out of that and that first novel then became a trilogy Um, and actually my second novel was going to be um, Beekeeper's Daughter I really wanted to write a historical novel but the trilogy took over my life for a few years so my I like the fact you do the gothic style, obviously because you, 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 they, when you go to Exmoor, because I live in um, Holsworthy in Devon, so I know where you, where you mean. If you go on there and, and the mist is coming in, rolling in, and you're there all on your own, you, you're going to stop, your heart's beating like 100 miles per hour, your brain's overacting like no tomorrow, and someone, someone, you hear a voice, like a squake going, 
think back to the classics like Wolverine Heights, and that was set on a Yorkshire moor, and, and that had that real gothic element. And obviously, although Exmoor is a long way um, away from Yorkshire, Yorkshire it, the moors have um, they have like an atmosphere, and I think it's because the mist does roll in from the sea, and it coats everything, and it is eerie, and it's sort of ghostly. And then you get um, old ancient properties that have been around, you know, have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And of course, a lot of them have got ghosts in them, or people have had really strange experiences in, in those places. So it just adds to this whole gothic element, I think. And, and I love, I just love the whole gothic genre. I mean, I love old gothic buildings, and, you know, you go up to London and you see the old architecture, which is of that period in time and, and stuff. I think, wow, I'd, my ideal dream house would be half Victorian and half Gothic. <laughs> now, um, I'm going to say, um, your, your, one of your styles, you said you did a, a, like a dark romance. research for your books? I do tons of research. <laughs> when I wrote the trilogy, um, I wanted, I always liked my stories to be authentic, you know, and so I based a lot of the supernatural elements on stuff that I'd actually experienced myself on, on me, you know, to be actual happenings, legends, folklore. But obviously vampires were something different, so I researched vampirism throughout the world, I mean, to, to get a handle on, you know, why the myth of vampire has been so um, prolific, because it is, it's prolific in every country. And, you know, there were so many different stories, and, and it's debatable what a vampire can stand, you know, some will... Um, Sunlight will kill one, a silver bonnet will, will kill another, a cross will kill another. But and so there's all these regional differences, no matter where you are in the world. But the only one consistent thing is its need for blood. That was the only consistent thing. You know, sunlight was debatable, silver bullets were debatable, garlic and crosses, you know, most places there was no such, there was no, that was not even... Uh, thought of as a way to destroy a vampire. And so I pretty much kept that. I kept that for my story. Um, and I just thought the whole, I like the fact that a vampire is in the darkness and so obviously in the sunlight. For the historical novel, that was a huge undertaking because I was writing about the Victorian period, obviously, 
which I've never lived in. And so I had to uh, rely on research. Um, and when working at the castle, they were that was a really interesting experience because the house or the castle had pretty much been set up as a Victorian house in recent years. And the same family had lived in the castle. And so I was able to look back through records of how it would have been at that time in the Victorian era, you know, just the way things were done. That was really, really helpful. Um, and then there's an element of that book that goes back to the 16th century and a witch trial. And I literally had to research witch trials of that period. And I actually ended up going down to the Museum of Witchcraft um, down in Boss Castle, which was an absolutely fascinating place to go. Now, do you use, you say that you are a, a trained horticulturist. So I presume when you write your books, you, when you do the scenery, have you ever been tempted to put the Latin names in? No, because <laughs> no one would understand. <laughs> I try not to, I mean, I do bring um, plants and trees into my books, but I, I use the common names because that is what most people associate, you know, and I don't want, it, I don't want to make it about... Um, I don't want to make it, you've got to have a degree in horticulture to read my books, you know, so I think it's best to keep it as simple as possible, really. No, I just thought that, when you, like, you, when you do the like, scenery, I've got to imagine that you, you can describe the grasses in, like, you know, better, like, a better, like, oh, instead of being a green, or oh, they're like a, they're like a crimson green, with flashes, yeah. flashes with yeah. yellow, and a shade of red, or something like that. <laughs> Definitely. I think um, having that, obviously, because I write a lot about the landscape, especially um, when I was writing about Exmoor, and it really does help to have a knowledge of plants and things. Even with my new book, Wishful, I go to New Orleans. Now, I've been to New Orleans, and the New Orleans has got um, a vibe all of its own, and it's to do with the fact that it's very hot, very humid, but it's the smell, it's the scent on the air, and, and sandalwood and jasmine, you just get that from walking through the districts of um, New Orleans, and so it's really important, I think, to um, infuse that into a story so that your reader hopefully will get this whole atmosphere from your writing, and you can describe how something smells as well as how it looks. I think that's, I think that's always a good, good thing to do. When you did the voodoo thing, did you ever get a chance to talk to a voodoo practitioner? No, I did, I, I did try, but unfortunately most of the people that dabble in voodoo, they're sort of, they're, they're going to try and sell you spells sort of thing. They're not, you know, um, they're not really that serious about it. And I think, yeah, I would have loved to speak to like a voodoo priestess or, or something, but I just didn't know how to really make that connection. And a lot of the um, sites you go online, they are not really, they are just saying, oh yes, I'll sell you a love spell, or I'll sell you, uh, you know, a 
some sort of spell or something. But I would have loved, I would love, to, I would still love to go to a voodoo ceremony. I just think it would be absolutely fascinating. And now I understand more about it. Um, you know, I, I want to go to a really authentic one, not not one that's just for the tourists sort of thing. You know? I, 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 I think it's like. Sorry. I was going to say, I saw a documentary some time ago that was about uh, people that practice being vampires. In, I think yes. it's, I think it's America <laughs> where they cut they cut themselves like razors and they drink the blood. Absolutely. I when I was doing um, my first book when I, when I was researching um, vampirism, there was actually a place in London um, in England and. You know, places, it used to be that there were sort of clubs and they were underground clubs where people would act at being vampires and they would sort of fight each other and, you know, pretend that was they were vampires sort of thing. And even today, there are some um, dark characters out there and a lot of people like, I guess they like the darkness, the imagery, the whole concept of being a vampire and they take it one step further. Um, they actually file their teeth down and yes, they do drink blood, but you know, they're not vampires, they don't need blood to live, they're just mimicking something. Now when you write your characters, do you base them on anybody you know or are they just straight from your head? like a formula like a, a style that you know you know which roughly where you're gonna take the character to Different direction from what I imagined it would. 
so even though I end up generally getting to the same place that I wanted to at the end, it takes a, on a life of its own sometimes. Um, it's never really that straightforward. And sometimes just things that happen to you, you think, wow, that's a really good scenario, or you read about something, and, and you think that's a particularly great element to put in the story. Because I, I like to read about folklore and um, legends and things like that. I get inspired by them. So I sort of weave it throughout. So I try, I try and um, try and incorporate a little bit of all that stuff into me and my novels. There is always a supernatural element. I know, I know your latest book is coming out, is it this month? It just came out. It ah. literally came out last week. <laughs> That's all right. So... When you when you start first started your writing, do you find it difficult to break through to the the, the, the main genre? You know, because I've I I found that doing the ebooks is hard because I don't understand the banking side of it. And I know if you go for a publisher, I know it's a different contract, but you some contract some publishers like you to pay a certain amount towards the printing and and I don't know how else it works but I know people have got this image that you make loads of money from books but sometimes you have to write like three or four books before you're quite well known as such. Okay so I would say my first experience with it, um, I wrote Raven's Deep in 2004 and in 2000, and I sent letters to every agent out there, you know, I mean, I, I was like, I'm going to get a traditional publishing deal, this, this is going to happen. And by 2000, and most of them just ignored you. I mean, <laughs> all you get is the standard letter back, you know. Um, and in 2007, I had, I got a letter from a, top London agent and she told me she really liked my story um, she thought it was great and she really liked my writing style and she wanted to meet me so of course I was like oh my goodness you know this is it this is this is amazing a London a top London agent so I went up to London and I met her and it started off really well she told me how much she liked the story etc etc and then she said to me, but vampires are not in right now. And this was before Twilight, before True Blood, before any of those. And I sort of turned around to her and I said, but, you know, it's been years since the last Vampire Craze, if you like. And that was back when Anne Rice released the Vampire Chronicles. So it's been like a decade at least. And I said to her, you know, the marketplace is ripe for this now. It's, there hasn't been anything for a while. I know the whole reading, um, right, the whole reading in right world is cyclic. Things go around and come around again. And she's like, she ummed and ahmed, and she said, yeah, but I've got to sell it to a publisher, and I just don't think I can sell this to a publisher. And she, she said, you've got a few problems in the first chapter. She sort of critiqued it, and she's like, go away, fix this, etc. and I'll think about it. So I went away and fixed it, um, 
And ultimately, she turned me down again with the saying, I just can't sell this. Vampires are just not, not the current genre right now. And, you know, and I've often thought about that. And I thought, oh, should I have pushed harder? Because here she was, the big London agent. I was this unknown author thinking that she knew what she was talking about. And, you know, it, it, six months later, I guess, something like that, when uh, Twilight hit the headlines, and I was like, damn, I was right, you know, this was, this, it was the right time to push this book. But, of course, once Twilight and then True Blood and then all those other vampire romances came out, I was just another author amongst hundreds by then, because everyone was writing about vampires. So I went ahead and I self-published my first book, and I ended up, because it was a, became a trilogy, I self-published the first three. And publishing, I mean, I don't, you should never pay anyone, um, you know, if you, if you get a publisher and you're not self-published, then you shouldn't be paying to have your books printed, but if you're obviously, if you're self-published, then yes, you have to pay for it. So I did that, and the publishing part was really easy. It was the marketing that was hard, and it's really tough. And back then, to market a self-published book, it was at a time when self-published books were seen as just not real books. You know, no one wanted to touch them, couldn't get them into stores. But I did have some success on Expo, because I was living on Expo at that time. Um, and I got them into all the local bookstores. I even got them into WH Smith's, you know, um, and I sold quite a lot locally. And then when I came back to America, I, I was writing my fourth book, and I thought, you know, the self-publishing way to go is just, it's just so hard. You can't really be taken serious as an author. Look at that, it's I just, I just found it hard myself, practical for me. But, but I do do like a, like I do um, uh, books on a site called Inkit. Okay, I've not really heard of that one. It's a, like a good. It's quite a. It's a beta app uh, thing where you can okay. put your books on. There's a quite a lot of uh, like you say, self-published people on it. Right. It's quite. It's quite good. I mean, I'll put mine on there if anybody reads them. I put them on my blog, and if anybody reads them, I'm quite happy. Right. I'm like you. I I I I got to a stage in my life. I think you can't please everybody. That's true. You can't. And you know, I I've always believed something that a, a writer um, told me a long time ago is that everybody's a critic. Everybody. And so it's only someone's opinion. So if someone hates your book. Then it's like, you know, so what? It's just your opinion. There are a million people out there that have got an opinion. And you, you're right, you can't please everyone. Um, you know, hopefully 
most people like your stuff you write, but you're always going to get someone that doesn't. So well, just don't read them. As I say, I've read a couple of the excerpts of your books that you can get on Amazon because I think see a lot of people don't do that. There's a lot of authors that don't put excerpts on, and I think right. I think you should do like a little free bit, you know, like even if it's only like the first chapter, because I think then right. you get the sense of the book. I, I well, that's my it, personal it opinion. Does. Yeah. Well, I tried to write comedy so, horror. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I said I tried to write comedy horror, but I I like to write horror with a twist of comedy in it, just a twist. Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, I'm a huge fan of um, Anne Rice. I love Anne Rice, but not particularly for her vampire chronicles. I liked her The Witching Hour. Um, that was a really dark chilling book and I just you know I read that years ago and it just blew me away and it was like wow you know this this woman can write this sort of thing I was going to say, <laughs> say what authors inspired you obviously you, you've got the, the classic ones that like people like what's the most obscure I, book you've ever read what's the most sorry, obscure sorry, book you've ever read that people might not have ever heard of. Um, well, uh, there is a book called Little Kate Katia. Um, it was one of my favourite books, and it was written by, I think, a Russian, I think she was Russian, A.M. Meldington. And she just wrote about story of this young girl in Russia and it was quite like harrowing and that, that was like a really I, d I don't know, some, some books just affect you and you think why does this affect me, it just did you know um, but I like Daphne du Maurier, I mean she's, she's great <laughs> um, I, can't, I can't really think off the top of my head of, of um, someone that is like, really unknown that I've read recently um, Robert Marcello, he, he wrote about vampires in the Civil War. That was really, really an, an interesting book. If your book was made into a film, just for argument's sake, film company knocked in the door and said, Hi, Jenny, we really like your book. We really want to make a film of your trilogy. Uh, we're going to get you involved in book, uh, film, but we want to change a few things around. Because as you know, sometimes... A book might not translate onto sure. film and vice versa. Would you change right. it a little bit because you wouldn't want your film on your book to be made a film, or would you try to stay true to the book as physically possible? Wow. I would love for that to happen. <laughs> um, I would like to stay true to the book as 
someone had the experience of filmmaking, like you say, there might be a reason they need to change things around. I mean, I would like some, definitely would want some input onto that, you know. Um, one thing I, I loved about J.K. Rowling when she wrote Harry Potter, I mean, I read, the, I read all the books, and then when I saw the movies, I thought, wow, they stayed so close to those books, you know. It was just amazing, because you often read a book, and then you see a movie, and you're often disappointed, you know. Um, I would hate to think of my books have been a disappointment if they ever hit the big screen, so I would like them to stay closer, close to me. Uh, yeah, I think I'd, I'd have to be a bit flexible. <laughs> well, one of the couple of books that I, uh, well, two things influenced me is The Day of the Triffids. I love it. Oh, yeah, that. that was a great story. Yeah. yeah. And Mes- Metamorphosis, which is about a man turning into a beetle. Okay, so I remember the fly, and I remember the metamorphic beetle one. <laughs> uh, I recommend it. It's a seriously weird film. Because one point the beetle was in a lift with talking to some, and there's people looking at him as he's walking down the lift. In the lift, yeah. it, I think it's originally a French film, and I think okay. they, re, I think they remade it. I'll try and I'll try and find it for you, but it's quite obscure. And it, 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 as you, if you've ever watched one of these French films, surreal films, you'll know what I'm on about. It's like, what the hell am I watching? Have you done an audio version of your book? I haven't, no. I haven't done that. Um, someone else said that to me recently, so maybe it's something I, I could think of in the future. I think, it's worth, sure. I think it's worth considering, because there's a lot of people... Uh, I mean, years ago, audio books, like you said, were about um, self-publishing, but they were originally meant for people uh, with blind or visually impaired but obviously people who were on long journeys thought oh, I can't be bothered to read a book sure. yeah. and, and, they, they, and they just you know they can't read a book while they're driving or something so yeah. they can just listen yeah. yeah it's a good idea I have um, I have I have really thought about it actually until about a week ago when somebody else mentioned that so you can try it out you can either do it yourself or hire someone like a, a professional right. to do it. I mean, it might cost a bit more money, though. But I would try it yourself first, see how you think it comes across, and just just release a oh, snippet. Well, I think <laughs> the trouble with me is I think I um, grew up in Essex, and so every time I hear myself on tape, I think, oh my goodness, I sound so Essex. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I was born in I was born in Whiskey on Sea. So there's nothing wrong with Bull Essex. I, I, I've been in Devon 30 years, so I, I've lost some of my accent, but it's still there somewhere. Yeah, I know. It is. Like it, it sounds... Where are you from originally? Westcliff on Sea, Essex. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, so true. I'm in Rochford. Oh, yeah, no, Rochford, Rochford, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and then I moved to South End. Yeah, no, South End. Yeah, yeah, lived there for a little while, York Road and all that. Yes. <laughs> I know all those places from my, from my younger days. <laughs> See, there's a place you could base a good 
a good story on uh, down the seaside because that's got some really creepy wonderful coves and you could have something like yeah. coming, coming in from the sea that's like, that, like a body found in a, on, on the on the sands and then you, right. the, the mystery evolves slowly but surely you know why was this body found I did, I did actually write um, some short stories and I did that on um, the coast of Florida a body on the on the sea but on a remote part of the coast so that was um, and that ended up being a ghost story sometimes I just have these I don't know what it is sometimes an inspiration and it's like I have to write this story and it's not a novel it's just a short story you know but there's been several times where weird things have happened or I've met odd characters and they've just inspired me to write something. Well, it often end up being a, a ghost story or a just a, a weird, weird story. Well, I just say, I, I, I just think that sometimes I'm like that. I get up in the mic thinking, oh, that, that would really make a good story. I, 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 That's right. I mean, sometimes in the past, I find that getting up at about two or three in the morning, I sometimes have the best inspiration. You know, it's like it just sometimes it doesn't come in the day, and then in the middle of the night, I don't know what it is, where it's really, really dark, it's really quiet, and you just get this inspiration from somewhere, and you just have to write something. But oh. saying that, I've often woken up. Well, no, but I think sometimes you you got to write. It, as long as you're writing, your brain is thinking, "Hmm." Yes, you're creating. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. No, definitely not. I I mean I'm trying I'm trying to find a bit. It's all right. I'm I'm it's all right. I'm not being rude. I just find a bit that I wrote. Yeah. Um, right there. Yeah. I'm just gonna. I, I've got a little. Um, how, many, how many years have you been writing? Oh, how long have I been writing? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, I just dipped in and in and out. I started because a friend of mine. Uh, we did a book called together called Cartoon Occult Martial Art. It's it's a combination of martial arts which I wrote the bit for, and drew the cartoon for, and the, my the, the co-writer who helped produce the book and helped publish it really, uh, S. Rob or Simon Rob, and he's a, a renowned occultist, and he wrote the occult bit, and that is sort of inspired me to write. I mean, I I, I like to go. Um, I did. I've done various stories. I've done. Uh, I've done. Uh, what was one of my favourite ones? Was Beware the Wearman. Instead of Werewolf, Wearman, right? Yeah. So I'll read it for you. Mitch is a five-year-old dog. Well, actually, uh, sorry, to name his breed correctly, Mitch, Mitch goes to the door every morning to have a growl and a bark at the paper boy or the postman, or virtually anyone who dares to come near his house. 
If someone makes things he's scary, everybody thinks he's cowardly. Mitch only makes fun of him. Mitch hated it. But he knew he was a secret. That was unknown to Julie Mary. You see, Mitch was a rescue dog. He came for some reason. A local dog charity would not work out why. Only lasted a month as his placement at a friend. Back again. Okay. I don't know what happened there. Something really weird went on. Yeah, it's because I was reading the story, he didn't want me to. Um, where was I? Mitch, Mitch, yeah, I'll do it again. Mitch was a five year old dog. Well, actually, a Jack Russell to main breed. Quickly, Mitch goes, quickly, Mitch goes to the door every morning to have a growl and a bark at the big boy. Or the postman, or virtually anyone who dares come near his house. The trouble is, Mitch thinks he's scary. Everyone thinks he's cuddly until he makes fun of him. Mitch hated it, but he knew he had a secret. It was unknown to Julie Mary. You see, Mitch was a rescue dog who, for some reason, local dog charities could not work out. Only lasted a month for his placement. As a friend of the doctor, he was turning to a very nervous handover and disappeared quickly before they could ask what the issue was they had. When charity tried to contact the doctor, his handover moved. Mitch was feeling a bit odd. He always did near the end of the month. So went into a quiet corner for the rest. A full moonlight beam shines Mitch. His body starts to transform and his black legs extend out and become legs. His front legs do the same. Become arms. The face becomes rounder. Mitch stood up. The face becomes rounder. Mitch stood up and walked to the mirror and smiled. Mitch walks up to the bedroom where the so-called owners are sleeping. Then he jumps on his bed and rips their throats out open and eats every little bit of them left. Mitch goes to the wardrobe and gets dressed and sits in the chair, waiting for the paper boy. Comes as normal to the door. To his surprise, a quite hairy man answers it and utters utterly stunned look face in his fa- look in his face. Then he's dragged into the, into what was meant met with a huge set of canine teeth. Mitch enjoyed that meal. Now it's the postman's turn. As you see, every dog has a say, especially when you're wearing one. I just thought I'd turn it around because most most stories are always about the, the actual the the man turning into a dog, and I thought, oh, I'll change it around. It's a dog who turned into. Yes, turn into a man. Yeah, that's very cool. Now, um, when uh, your new book out, are you, have you got a, a little snippet you could read for us? Yes, we are ready. Okay. Amy woke with a start. The beat of her heart was fast, and fear gripped her as she held her breath, listening to any noise in the room. In the blackness, they were silent, and she breathed easier, thinking about the strange and powerful dream that could curdle the blood. Amy forced herself to let go of the lingering images. She wondered how she knew it was Kara's voice. Perhaps, perhaps, locked away in her subconscious was the memory of her mother's voice and an odd connection with her. Amy rubbed her forehead, refusing to think any more. She turned onto her side, bumped up her pillow, and closed her eyes again. 
the reassuring tick from the bedside clock lulling her into a sense of security. A long, mournful howl resonated through her head. Her eyes snapped open as uncertainty flitted through her mind. Out of the darkness, the howl came again, penetrating through the glass of the window. Her senses became fully alert as she jumped out of bed. Unaccustomed to the room in the darkness, she stubbed her toe on the corner of the bedroom chair and letting out a cry of pain, she hobbled across to the window. Her toe throbbed, but knowing the source of the noise was more important. She pushed the window open a few inches, allowing the icy air to crawl over her skin. Another blood-curdling howl sounded again, this time closer. Tiny hairs rose on her skin as she strained her eyes to see through the murkiness. There was movement in the undergrowth, and she stared at the abstract black shapes that by daylight were probably shrubs. Suddenly, out from the hypnotic grayness, she could make out a silhouette moving closer to her. She held her breath, eyes straining hard, and starting to her in the intensity of her stare. Despite her alarm, she refused to move, determined to figure out what it was that was terrorizing her mind. But many minutes passed, and the fog revealed no great mystery. The sound was gone, replaced by an eerie silence, and fear of the unknown penetrated her every sense until she finally pulled the window shut. Whatever had been there was gone. That's it. <laughs> oh, thank you. I see. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. It, it's very nice of you. To do that. I, I, thought, I thought I'd ask you to do that because then people can get a feel for the book and obviously as we're talking about the book where can people go to get the book okay um, Wish Tool and all my books actually are available online obviously Amazon is the place to go these days for everything and my book is all on Amazon it's on amazon.co.uk it's also on amazon.com and uh, I can, you can also get my book via my website, which actually um, is janejordannovelist.com. And that just takes a link either to Amazon or it, takes, um, it goes to a link to Black Opal Books, which published Wish Talk. Have you another book in your mind that you're writing at the moment? I do. <laughs> I do. Um, I have maybe four or five chapters. Um, I'm in, but it is a very rough draft. I've had, had such a busy, hectic year this year, um, moving houses and or, or in the process of moving houses, that my writing has sort of been put somewhat on a back burner. Um, I also write for a Florida gardening magazine, and so I've had certain assignments from them to complete. So um, I've got another one to get in. I have deadlines from there, so I have to meet certain deadlines. But once that's out of the way, and once the move is out of the way, I can concentrate on my on my next novel. You've never sent the wrong book, the wrong thing to each one of you. You know, like one day you've accidentally sent a bit of your book. To the, to the, to the <laughs> no, no. They have very 
fresh coat criteria, um, and it's very format-driven. You can only do so many words for a magazine article, and they generally like pictures attached. So I um, obviously, because I write about plants and plants in Florida, um, so I have pictures that have to go with the article. Um, so yeah, no, I keep them totally, totally separate. <laughs> I can sense that you both enjoy both, though. It gives you a, a little, not another outlet. It does. Um, the horticulture thing is, is, you know, I've always had a passion for plants. And when I was back in England, I worked for a botanical garden in Somerset. Um, and I think coming back to the States and obviously writing for Florida Gardening Magazine, it was a way to use my writing skills but in a different obviously a different way completely um, and team that that skill if you like with my actual knowledge of my training um, so yeah definitely it's a definitely a different type of writing and an outlet whereas my novels tend to be are totally stories you know they are fiction and they are um, they can be dark and they can be supernatural and some romance going through, but dark romance. So they are worlds apart, <laughs> even though they're this, from the same author. Hmm. I'm definitely going to look into that. Um, I I think, what would advice would you give to aspiring writers? I would say, when you've written your work whether it be a novel or a short story, edit it and then edit it again. <laughs> Polish it to the best it can possibly be and come away from it for maybe a week or a few days and then go back and read it. Um, because sometimes, you know, you just need to get that polished piece of work and then send it to publishers. You know, as an unknown author, you won't get it to the big publishers. They won't even entertain you. And I have found that agents, my experience with agents, is they're looking for every excuse to turn your work down. They're not out there to make your career. And so um, someone once told me that get a publisher first and then get an agent. And I sort of think that's probably true. That's probably the best advice. Um, you know, it's... In, in the States, where I'm living right now, they basically say if you're not with one of the top six publishers, then most agents won't be, won't be interested in you anyway. So, and obviously, there's, there's so much competition out there right now. I was told recently that every, for every, um, every day, every release that you have your book, that your, your book is being released, the same day, 2,000 other books are also being released. So, you know, it's really hard to um, stand out from the competition. Um, and, you know, self-publishing is a double-edged sword. I mean, for some writers, it's the only way their work will ever get out there. And there are, I've, I've read some amazing stuff by self-published writers. There are some truly great writers out there that are self-published. But on the other hand, there are some truly bad writers out there that are self-published. And, and so, 
it sort of dilutes the dilutes the whole industry in, in lots of ways. But like I said, it, it's there are pros and cons for it. Um, and I I don't think I would have got a publishing contract had I not self published my first three books. So you know, I think there's something to be said in sometimes you just have to pay your dues and, and go through the process. I think we've covered a fair bit there. I think we've covered most of it. Um, what I, I normally do... What I normally do when I sign off my show, I normally like to do a neat sign-off. So here I normally put the person I'm interviewing right on the spot. And I say to them, what is going to be your unique sign-off, Jane? Talk to a lady called Jane. Her rather unnoticed novels, you see. I wonder if she's going to write the one about a killer rose that happens to be a vampire at night. I'm not so sure she would. But she may she do. I may have given her an idea or two. It was nice to talk to her, and she did give a nice friendly chat, and she gave you a sample of her book, and that was the end of that. So I'd like to thank her for being on my show. It was great for fun to talk to her, though. I hope the move that Wetsy's going through is going to go okay and no vampires come out from the property and say, hey. Oh, 